0: Everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chrono skimming classics, and investigations of alternate universes that get stuck into the middle of much vaunted runs. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me at Nico Action. It's N I C O A C T I O N, where my AU self is Secret Nico.
1: Hey everybody, it is Nathan, and my AU self is secretly a pop star, but there's no pop music in this world, so I'm a chain-smoking mess. Too close to real life, actually. You can find me on Twitter at Dazzler AOA, that's like Dazzler, in the Age of
0: Apocalypse.
2: And I'm TK of Days of TK's Past and Future, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX.
0: So, my my good gentlemen, it has been some breadth of time. It has been a wonder breadth of time since we have convocated to investigate earth's mightiest heroes and i'm so so fucking happy to be back to talk avengers but wait uh, with, uh, no avengers to be found that's because what are these avengers you speak of i uh, know it's it's all squadron my, my friend it's all squadron just the squadron supreme of america
2: Ah, uh, yes, our good old friend Hyperion. Mmm, beefy.
0: Yeah, let me be real. He could teach me U.S. history anytime. <laughs> yeah,
1: but, like, as long as he, like, drops. Like, as long as it's one of the versions that's not a fascist. Uh
0: yeah okay 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 okay. I I hear you Uh, because I'm actually not usually super into Hyperion like there's something I don't really go for like the super pretty blonde like there's something too sweet about it I I need something a little bit like if it doesn't feel like you're going to turn on me on a dime in the morning after I've made you breakfast and we're going to get into some sort of fight where you smash the orange juice down and I scream that I want you to get out and then we have sex in the car if I can't see that in your eyes I don't know that I can really be attracted to you.
2: So you want that Hyperion that goes off with Thor when they both have beards.
0: Yes. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a good toxic love Hyperion, not toxic politics Hyperion. <laughs> That's so an all right. Distinction. then we have to be here to talk about Heroes Reborn. I mean, obviously, there's nothing else oh, at yeah. this point, right? And now the Heroes Reborn event has already seen some coverage on our fine network and show. But, you know, we just did this whole thing again with doing the Avengers and, you know, TK, you were not part of it last time. So now you get to Join us for a look at whatever happened to Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Now, the main series is, of course, written by Jason Aaron, the architect of this whole motherfucker, and all of the like key backup stories have art by Ed McGuinness, Mark Morales, and Matthew Wilson, with letters by Corey Pettit, while the A stories after issue one actually change creative teams. While it all stays Jason Aaron on writing, we have Dale Kwan and Scott Hanna on the art duties for the second issue. For issue three, we have Frederico Vincenti and Matt Mila. And for issue four, we have a very bold choice in James Stokey on full art duties. It is, and I mean this like with great respect and admiration, an ugly fucking issue. And it should be. It's an ugly story. It should be ugly. But like, it's ugly. It's real fucking twisted and real ugly. Now, in addition to that first half of Heroes Reborn 1 through 4, we're also going to be taking a look at the first half one-shots. That includes Hyperion and the Imperial Guard, written by Ryan Caddy, with art by Michelle Bandini, Elizabeth Damico, and Eric Arseniega, with a backup story by Stephen Byrne on art. Now, this whole thing was lettered by Corey Pettit. This is a really fun sort of what-if-in-time story. We're also going to be taking a look at Peter Parker, The Amazing Shutterbug, by Mark Bernadin, Ron Lim, Rafael De La Torre, Scott, Hannah, and Jim Campbell, with letters by Ariana Mar. Magneto and the Mutant Force, an issue that I'm never sure if I love or hate by Steve Orlando, Bernard Chang, David Curiel, and Clayton Cowles. I think I always come around to love, but I'm never sure. Siege Society by Corey Ziegler, Paco Medina, Pete Pantanzas, and Joe Sabino on letters, as well as Young Squadron by Jim Zub, Stephen Cummings, Eric Arseniega, letters by Clayton Cowles. I hit a point sometimes reading these credits where I'm just like, all of these people deserve better than me sounding out of breath at the end. So, okay. all right. I need to take us back a minute. This was not any Everybody's first AU. This was certainly none of our first AU. And it led me to thinking about like the nature of like big crossover event AUs. And I think, you know, when we're talking about like big crossover event AUs, one's gotta come to mind for everybody. Nathan, TK, do you guys have a go to? Oh, right, that replaced the books kind of event. I
1: mean, to me, it feels like the OG of those events is the age of apocalypse, and that's what I always go to when I think of those. I think though I can't I can't talk about them without acknowledging. Even though it wasn't a line replacing crossover, the importance of Days of Future Path to me as a reader, as a kid, just happened to look into that issue 141 as a kid's tell-how at a thrift store for really cheap. And that set the tone of what AUs could show about each of the characters. Like it sh- told me that you could learn more about the characters that you're reading from reading these AUs.
2: Age of Apocalypse, of course. That was the peak of my young comic book reading life where I had just kind of aged up enough and been reading for long enough that I now basically understood everything. Generation X had just launched. It was my favorite book ever. I was so excited. And the jarring fact of after four issues, the book, quote, being canceled and everything changing over to Age of Apocalypse. And then you get Gen. next and you know that image of Husk being you know trapped in the fight as Kitty and Colossus leave her to die stay you know the Baccalo art it stays in my head at all times but I am also going to say I have a newfound love for Age of X just based on the fact that now I think Age of X is this really beautiful distillation of what was going on uh, in the decimation era and while the decimation era lasted way too long i i think there's something really cool about the idea of the x-men fighting for their like last strands of survival and i think age of x really just distilled that idea into a beautiful universe a little pocket universe and i have been really impressed by it on later revisits
0: i love the ones you guys have mentioned you guys- guys really read from not just my notes but my own personal experience if i could add one that always kind of comes to mind for me as an oh right everything did that for better or for worse the rebranding of the entire marvel universe as god for damned house of m whether or not you like it and i probably don't i really probably don't like house of m it is one that really imprints on my mind and this is obviously far from a complete list and i would be foolish not to to include on a complete list things like earlier appearances of the Squadron Supreme. But I wanted to take a look at some of the books that you might consider part of this. I loved Nathan that you counted Days of Future Past because I kind of called it the OG for this. I thought that really set the pace in 1981 for what a line-wide replacement crossover could be. You know, we would come back to Days of Future Past so many times. It's a universe that can really mean something to you. I thought the Secret Wars did. Days of Future Past miniseries was spectacular and I really love so much of what Days of Future Past has offered us over the years. It's given us really truly awesome interpretations of characters that have stuck with us. Do you guys have like a favorite thing about Days of Future Past?
1: Like just because of what it meant to me, I would have to say Days of Future Present. It was probably one, uh, it was the second trade paperback I had from X-Men because like, the first one was the from the Ashes trade paperback that covers right around with Rogue joins X-Men to like write about when Wolverine gets married. It was one of those stories I read so many times. I was a huge Excalibur fan at the time, so getting to see Rachel so prominent in a crossover annual event was really cool to me. Even later on when they revisited Excalibur, I loved it. I, I love seeing the heroes that we know and love having been brought to their breaking point and knowing that we're going to get to walk away. But to also see what happens they go to that break.
2: The assassination of Senator Kelly being for me just this like extreme that I think I hadn't thought about the X-Men going to because again this is a really young comic book reader time for me and it just the real world parallel of you know what might happen if rather than it being like a, a super villain that we're dealing with was like a real political event
0: for me I had a very similar relationship with it and something that I think is very telling of Days of Future Past on a lot of Level is that Days of Future Past is a timeline that has reverberation into other time lots. Like there are so many versions of Days of Future Past. There's a beautiful hardcover that collects a number of them. And I always think it is a notable event that Days of Future Past gave us the idea that the maturation of Kitty into some form of a Kate Pride is a defining moment for her adulthood. It is a thing that she will come do on it's sort of a promise that we all hold her to. I think we also see it in Jubilee because even if you never read MC2 everybody knows Jubilee and the X people So like, there's stuff where like you say, oh okay, that person's going to become a big deal it's I think why we all held out hope for Gert from Runaways because we knew one day she would become that Avenger so I really have a lot of warm feeling for Days of Future Past.
1: Yeah, I, some of the revisits were better than others and there's some weirdness about different timeline springing out of that which is hard to justify with there only being one version of rachel in the multiverse so like like that kid that her and franklin had was it hyperstorm that was weird that was weird
0: now there's not so much concrete replaces for the next couple of uh, years this being 1981 in 1985 we get the two-part saga of kulan gath which i could not go on about more if i tried (laughs) we get the new mutants kind of time caper thing in 19. 1987, which runs from roughly New Mutants 46 to New Mutants 51. That's basically the Mutant Massacre through that really memorable cover of them on space, looking all sorts of Blondie and Dagwood, right? And okay, then, but that old katie Power, amazing, oh, amazing. I am here for it. That's why it's on this list. And, <laughs> and then, of course, the Cross Time Caper from 1989 to 1990. Which, I mean, I think if Chris Claremont hadn't been stopped, it would still be going. <laughs> so I don't know about you guys but these actually represent some of my favorite stories of all time really specifically the saga of Kulan Gath and it's really funny I'm so glad you mentioned out of the ashes and you know now we're mentioning saga of Kulan Gath because those are two stories that I know we're going to cover in the next couple of months so I'm really excited to be talking about them in some former part do any of those stories really like you know reverberate with you guys
1: it is the Kulan Gath saga all the way reverberates the most I have so many fond memories of that new mutants time caper too. And as much as I love Excalibur, the cross time caper is probably my least favorite part of it because it just goes on fucking for forever. It's forever. And you're like, get back home, come on. The Kulangoth definitely, that saga, really got to me. I think it set up in my mind, you know, like that in the issue where Rachel and Amara like are French maids at the Hellfire Club for a hot minute. But like that set up a really strong like relationship between Amara and Rachel that hasn't been viewed since, but like I view those characters as being really good for because they're both out of time, right? They're both out of time care. The whole Storm and Callisto, like are they going to fuck or not? Come on. Even in the alternate reality, like the Kulangath thing. Oh, And just like the Avengers appearances. It's just, it's so cool to see you realize that New York and Marvel just has all of these superheroes hanging out. And it's, it's one of those cool times where you see it and you get to realize that events happening in X-Men are going to affect other or should affect others in characters.
2: It just feels different different from other alternate timelines and au events in that like it feels like it is really rooted in a eurocentric fascination with history and alternate timelines versus like an american centric one that's probably going to have more to do with like the crumbling of society as a whole versus like what if nazis
0: now it's just impossible to talk about au line-wide replacements without talking of course about age of apocalypse and the following year heroes Reborn. these two line wide replacements whether or not they were intended to be forever or were only ever for the length of a contract or a storyline really came to redefine the 90s almost like as this time of grand excess because all of these fucking books man and anybody who's like a oh i'm a fancy trade man Oh, i'm a you know i'm a collector person oh look at me i need to have the fancy trades you probably are familiar with the special gold embossed Age of Apocalypse trades for every trade, <laughs> and they're so excessive in '90s. And I, yeah, you know, I'm gonna say it. I don't love the Age of Apocalypse. I don't love Heroes Reborn. The original. Uh, I love things about them. I love things from them. I love lots of things they did, and I loved lots of things that they contributed to the overall zeitgeist. But like, uh, Age of Apocalypse is a little like, womp womp, dark for me. Just for, like it just didn't hit my dark bones it hits dark bones and I'm into it I love the I love the ooh and the oh no of it and like I do love Sugar Man I love Sugar <laughs> Man a lot I think he's the sweetest little baby in the world and uh, I think Dark Beast is of course the superior version of B. and I uh, I like other stuff yeah X-Man is amazing but I just wasn't for me now I know I'm in the minority like not just in general but in this room and I'm okay with that because you know it's not like I think it's bad I just think it's not for me but I would love to hear about why it is for you guys, because like nothing's cooler than why people love stuff. So, you know, this isn't about me saying it's bad because there's definitely things I love. So I'd love to hear about your guys' passion for this universe.
2: Well, before we get to that, my one question that I want to ask you is this was pretty, Age of Apocalypse came pretty well after you had kind of been a comics reader, correct? Yes. Because your dad was a collector and you were, you were pretty ensconced in the books by that point,
0: right? I remember it happening actively, yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that is something that I have heard from a lot of people with um, more access as young people to comic books. For me, one of the reasons, I mean, I had been reading for a few years, but I still, like I said, I was really at a point where I had kind of only just started to figure everything out. And my collection was only just then becoming consistent. Before that, I was kind of taking whatever I could get and missing big chunks between issues that I would be able to purchase. and Age of Apocalypse really kind of represented the first time I'd witnessed any big changes among the X-Men, and I feel like that that's something that I hear a lot. Either it was the first big crossover for people, or it was you know, in reading in the past, they had always heard about Age of Apocalypse, and you know, so many people will say stuff like, yeah, you know, I'd read a few comics here and there. I watched all of x-men the animated series and you know i heard about age of apocalypse and wanted to pick that up and i couldn't believe how different everything was yeah i mean that really was my experience i just was so taken aback by how everything that i had just kind of solidified in my head about every single character got turned upside down and i got to see new perspectives on a lot of characters and i remember having really like i've found myself being very critical of some of the reimaginings like because I think one of the things that you get a lot of times with AUs is at the end of the day the core of a person is the same and if you put them in a different context it will still be the same core and you know like for Cyclops I don't think he got I don't I didn't feel like they got the core of Cyclops but their version of the core will be the same is Cyclops and Jean get together at the end regardless which just seems silly to me because I really felt like they did a ton of work to establish Jean and Logan in this universe and what set them apart to me just kind of seemed like more of like a well you know she has to wind up hanging out with Cyclops at some point but like you I really thought Sugar Man was cool and horrible I I don't want to say I think Dark Beast is the superior one I think for one thing our beast really just needs to complete the transformation and finally become Dark Beast on Krakoa these days. I really like the idea of Beast becoming a sinister type and Beast's fascination with science going too far. And then, yeah, I mean, I named myself after Nate Gray. I fucking love Nate Gray. I'm very bummed about a lot of stories that use him in present continuity, but I thought he was so cool in Age of Apocalypse.
1: I had a very similar experience, Kate. Like, it was probably the first, like, by the time Age of Apocalypse came around, it was like the first event that I really got a lot of the issues of. I, I didn't, as a kid, maybe follow all of the line-wide X-Men, but Age of Apocalypse, I got it all about the same kind of time because it was so fascinating to me. Very much like TK, I was just beginning to figure out who these characters were. So, like, just to see them so drastically altered was just such an amazing experience for me. It took, for me especially, uh, Dazzler from, you know, when I was first starting to read comics, I was like, Dazzler's a joke, she's just some 70s disco queen, little dude, I. I know like that was the first thing that caused me to look at her and say like oh cool like she could be more than just that jokey seven disco thing it was just cool to see the different lineups of the teams because as a kid that was something i always did like draw like like wrote these characters up and drew the characters up as like different teams trying to see how different dynamics would work and i loved that the age of apocalypse event took the characters we knew and loved not only changed their reality but gave us different team dynamics to kind of play with and see
0: there's certainly no denying that so much of age of apocalypse would come to ground grab- onto the main X-Men universe in a lot of ways reflective of the similar path that Days of Future Past took. And I am really grateful for the influence of Age of Apocalypse, the way it's improved the X-Men universe. I'm certainly not here to, you know, hit it with a stick, though there were definitely stories that hit a little bit better than others. All said and done, Age of Apocalypse, kicks. heroes were born in the fucking teeth.
2: <laughs> I feel like that's a pretty universal <laughs> feeling among comic book fans that 1996
0: 1997 heroes reborn reimagining of the characters you don't ever want to be like yes please for the love of god put all of the characters in a situation where the last year or two of comic book storytelling <laughs> never happened like you don't it's what we were all doing with judgment day we were all like well this isn't gonna have happened oh no everybody's <laughs> and like that's kind of how i felt about you know heroes Reborn at the time as a kid i even remember being like this is weird i don't understand it's like i guess it like has to be like Marvel versus DC it's gonna go back at the end and like I even as a kid remember thinking there was something weird about it I'm sure I didn't have the prescient knowledge to be like oh the corporate synergy restructuring like you know I'm sure it wasn't anything like that but there was this idea that like you can't really break apart a universe like that. it's a little weird to think but I try to imagine for a moment if somehow the Wildstorm universe had to separate back out of the DC <laughs> universe I think they would just be like no it doesn't work any more guys sorry those characters are dead and like you just start over you just completely start over i think you are
2: right though in that i don't i especially because it came after age of apocalypse i think even young comic book fans who didn't really understand the corporate side of things still just kind of felt like there's no way there this is just we're not gonna keep things separate like eventually they will have to fold them back in and it on- honestly lasted longer than i would have thought but i do just feel like on top of the fact that it had already been proven that you you can do this type of thing and i just don't you know i i can't see any way that you could ever authentically keep all of these characters keep the x-men separate from all the avengers and vice versa i have always wondered though you know given that this was such a period of popularity for the x-men and kind of a low point for the popularity of the characters that left how much of a thought process there was of like is there any hope of splitting these two up and maybe allowing the x-men to thrive on their own and possibly finding new life for the avengers and the other human characters elsewhere i've thought a lot about it as we've done the mc2 coverage just because you know this is i think so many people forget what life was like before the mcu for a lot of these characters i remember
1: when heroes Reborn happened i did read the avengers at the time i loved i love the 90s avengers like
0: because you're a crossing king right oh
1: yeah the <laughs> like crossing time slide sign me the fuck up for <laughs> all of it the gathering saga on mm, like prime 90s avengers
0: i'm gonna call you the crossing king forever <laughs> <Not> <laughs> i think
1: that's a I great
0: know. name <laughs>
1: hey i'm nathan the crossing king but <laughs> at least oh, it's like not it. the time slide king at least it's not the king of time slide because
0: respect <laughs> I mean, you know, and I think anything is probably a little bit better than Rise of the Midnight Suns King, so.
1: when you get to that point in Avengers, you could see that they were winding stuff down and there was some stuff that, like, we knew about, like, here's Reborn* coming out. So I was like, wait, did they just make Tony a teen just for a few months just to, like, say, ha got you, this life-altering thing is going to happen. But no, really, he's going to go to this <laughs> alternate reality. But it did make a few characters more exciting for me. Fantastic Four, I think I never was able to latch on to them that much. There were some fun eras with, you know, Thing in the Helmet, Sue, Boo, Window Sue, and Scott Lang in the team. But, like, otherwise, Fantastic Four never really got me with the main four but when i read that heroes were born fantastic four i was like oh cool i can kind of get down to fantastic four and the heroes were born avengers i do love i i do love i love the idea of using hellcat even though she's just agatha harkness's cat
2: hellcat. okay cool i'll never get over big tits rob liefeld cap from heroes <laughs> Reborn. i'll never recover from it you can't i thought it
1: was so such a cool idea for them to split hulk and bruce banner and like make them make the hulk exist in the two different realities I was like that's
0: kind of cool All right, cool it's definitely one of the things that I felt was like uniquely defining of the era when you look back there's all of these weird little quirks that are very what if we but they couldn't really follow through on it there's never really that sense of yes this is what we're doing I really want to see where they could have gone but I think ultimately the effectiveness of heroes were born in the 90s was limited by the fact that it was a limited term contract with creators that were already kind of famously fickle. And that really does put the use of that term here to describe a blind faith in an outdated system that will prevail over a changing tide that demands better treatment in interesting perspective. And man, it's so interesting that from 1981 to 1997, we've talked about six events and then from 2000 to 2022 we have more than 10 it's really interesting i don't know if everybody remembers but the age of apocalypse had a semi-sequel in the semi-sequel to apocalypse the 12 with ages of apocalypse yeah.
2: mm-hmm.
0: that was a cute one ran through it. like yeah it, well it was really cute it was really fun Get a bit of Cyclops. Got it. Yeah. Ran through a bunch of books for no reason. Like it was one part was X-Men Unlimited. Okay, have it. <laughs> we also had, of course, House of M and Age of X in 2005 and 2011. I don't love House of M for a million reasons. There's stuff that I do love. Really, really. I will never stop loving Ileana being so well used in the House of M. And I am a huge fan of the Mystique Wolverine relationship. No apologies. I love them together. Mm -hmm. I think for who they were then, it makes sense. And in the house of M, it makes sense again. I don't ship them now. That's not what I'm here for. But I really love when you can find a good use for Logan Raven. I think it's really cute. Mm. It's just The mm. thing that really
2: works about it to me, and this is something that you pointed out when we were talking about their terrible child was like I believe Mystique and Logan together in like 1920 because House of M really posits a world in which everything has been different for so long then it, it becomes really cool again
1: there were some things I, I really loved about House of M there were some things I, I didn't love I at the time really loved the redemption of Carol and her living through a reality where she could see herself as a hero again
0: and- Giant Seism is Marvel number one what what?
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> it was it's the only, like, new Academy ex- stuff I ever read because <laughs> I was so fascinated to see Karma as one of the headmasters and, like, Doug Ramsey resurrected. And I loved, like, the exile stuff that ran through House of M, although it's really hard to reconcile, but maybe not because Moira actually would want to maybe cure his mutation. So I could see that. Yeah, she would. <laughs> but, like, anytime I see, like, think of these alternate realities, I'm always, like, remembering, what was Moira doing? Like, wait, did she know this was an alternate reality? Okay, yeah. cool. I didn't really love Kate or Emma in the series at all and uh. Obviously, the way it used Wanda throughout the series was definitely not
0: big. Yeah, a big boo-urns on the way it used Wanda. Oh, yeah. I I sort of wonder now,
2: because I actually think I really enjoyed it at the time, and I'm wondering if it just kind of is a skewed perspective because of the fact that we all hate what happens at the very end, the decimation, Um, and I, I my point being... I I sometimes think that I think of it as like, this was the last good thing that happened before everything went bad. Uh, For one thing, it had fantastic art, especially that main book really did. The team all getting their memories back and coming together, there was something really cool about that to me. And it's funny that you mentioned Emma because yeah, it really sucks that her and Cyclops are just like boring people, but that her getting her memories back is one of those moments that like the reaction was so strong and so stirring and a few other people just have these like gut-wrenching moments where they get their memories back and i remember thinking that that was one of the really cool things about the crossover and one of the really cool things that happens in some au stuff which is having a character sort of be living in what is a personal paradise and then having to reckon with the fact that the real world is really not as kind to them
0: and i think House of M reminds me of something that I never trust about these AUs ever. You can't trust them because they're always a reflection of that moment. Mm -hmm. This all works in House of M because it's the astonishing and new Avengers moment. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really make sense outside of that context. If you move it, it gets a little what the fuck are you talking about? And that's where I think Age of X really succeeded because Mike carries X-Men legacy so beautifully borrowed and and lended from and sort of pays back to so many eras of X Men over the years with such a clever and sly ingenuity moving in and out of moments to take characters who never got the explicit definition they so richly deserved and pulling them into this light. And by that expression, covering so much ground throughout the history of the Marvel Universe, his AU reflects so many. Points throughout the X Men's timeline that I think, having reread it not too long ago, there is a very timeless quality to Age of X. It also helps that it's like 10 issues, not 46.
2: You're absolutely right about that. And while, you know, I did mention that I really like that it distills the heart of the Decimation era, there is a degree to which it also you know, mutants fighting for their survival, I don't want to say will never go out of style but like that's always relevant to the X-Men and in focusing the lens so tightly on what we think of as the kind of the core group of mutants like even though it is more than the 198 like they really did manage to dial it into who we expect to see in any given mutant centric event and yeah they really did find ways to explore the core Quintessential elements of each like individual character, with even just like one or two panels on some people. Like you don't go super in depth with all the character, all the telepaths who put up the walls, but like just the art on those characters and the job that they have really tells you kind of a lot of what you need to know without having to be forty issues to get to it.
1: Yeah, the TK team, like mm, that was amazing. Like just seeing all those characters in it. I love. I did love the mystery of like who is Revan. Who's running Robin yes. on? That was so good. You know, I, I love side stories where like the one with the Dazzler and she's like, I sold more downloads than Lady Gaga or something <laughs> last week on iTunes. It was one of the events that really did have a lot of resonating stuff afterwards. Obviously, Frenzy was very changed by the event. That whole X-Men legacy, Nico, like you mentioned, beautiful book that really spins out of the event. It kind of brought like characters like Tempo a little bit back into the zeitgeist, the culture of zeitgeist, because, you know, these, all these characters had disappeared for a while. While we're seen, maybe albeit briefly, but they were seen. Um, and I liked a lot of the history of that universe, like the idea that the Fantastic Four took Rain in and then Rain killed Franklin Richards. And so okay. Sue Storm turned the rest of the family in. So, like, kind of like, it was proof some of what I thought of some of the characters that weren't Mewtwo, like the other Marvel heroes.
0: We had the pleasure of having Mike Carey on the show and we got to gush a little bit about what amazing things Age of X means to us. And it's such a cool thing to have because age of x represents such a major milestone for characters like you guys said like frenzy like tempo who were always such fan favorites and it really reflects a moment where a creator took the time to see what it is about these characters that fans love so much following their own voice on the character and it's just really special and it's from there in 2011 that shit gets ridiculous From 2013 to 2022, I have an ulcer. (laughs) I just have a full ulcer because no one can afford this. Like, a rough breakdown is 2013 saw Battle of the Atom. 2013 saw Age of Ultron. 2015 and 2016 was nothing but AUs with Secret (laughs) Wars. 2017 was Fuck Yourself, Secret Empire. 2019 was Age of X-Men, which I guess didn't matter. 2019 was also the Infinity Warps, which I still don't understand understand and then 2021 to 2022 was like kind of the dark hold and maybe a little bit the dark ages kind of so i guys guys this is so many crossovers that have so many au's and i don't know outside of secret wars which you know big undertaking i don't know that i care well i do want to say though that secret wars at least
2: did us the favor of being like obviously this isn't permanent we don't necessarily know what's coming after secret wars we don't know what the world is going to look like but they never tried to give any sort of indication of like this is a new direction that we're going in we all knew it was our summer break and the fact that there was so many books and so many different worlds to explore you really i don't i still don't think i have read everything from it and at the time i really limited my selection like i'm not even sure i read all the x-men stuff i thought it was cool that it was like a buffet and like you're obviously not going to eat every single thing but we've given you so much that there's gonna be a few things that you like and it's four issues plus the the main series but we're gonna do four issues and then we're we're doing whatever the new thing is and i really after years of being like who knows like this crossover could be it nothing will ever be the same after and then and, you know the crossover is done and it's like you know, things kind of feel the same like maybe one character is dead but things feel very similar I really just appreciated that they were honest with us and gave us such an abundance of choices that it felt okay to be like nah I'm gonna stick to Inferno E is for Extinction and a couple others and I will not be reading Spider Island until last year that
1: is probably my favorite part of Secret Wars because yeah it, it was like you said TK it was Spider Island? (laughs) it was it was very transparent it's like you might like these and i loved how it like separated them into the different groupings like you know like war zone battle zone i forget i forget all the groupings oh my god it was fun in a way that maybe like say age of ultron or battle of the atom weren't for me so it kind of like reignited my idea oh my gosh this is what like uh au reality can be which i kind of cut through age of x-men which I, i did love most of it and you're right it didn't matter and none of that mattered but god some of it was fun and seeing nightcrawler and megan finally get together so happy
0: and yeah no one's here to say that pointless can't be a blast i look back on trying to collect as much secret wars as i did and i'm just like a boy could go bankrupt yeah seriously and i think the problem is i actually did get something out of a lot of those mini series not coming for any in particular i'm not like not for me but like uh i maybe could have passed on like the Extinction Agenda mini. Oh, I, I think, love
1: that one. Holy shit.
0: I think other than that one, I really liked most of the X-Men ones and that was like really cool for me. I loved Thor's. I loved uh, the Captain Britain thing with Pfizer uh, I loved the secret love one shot that vaguely made Daredevil Electra and Typhoid Mary have a real complicated threesome. I loved that and and it had Robbie Reyes and Kamala Khan uh, have a thing which I also really loved. So like there was like some really great stuff and I think that might have even been one of the things that was so hard. I wasn't feeling like oh, I'm getting ripped off. I was feeling like oh, I just can't keep up and there's a lot of Marvel crossovers where like I want to be like excuse me Marvel offices I've decided that only about two thirds of the pages in any of these books are relevant to anything I am doing with the rest of my life ever, so here's what's gonna fucking happen. I'm gonna get a third of my money back, and like I don't feel that about Secret Wars. I feel like Secret Wars was so nebulous that it was hard to really understand how this was all working, but it certainly wasn't an uncreative time.
2: And I really do respect that the the idea was essentially like, yeah, I mean, a lot of it might not work, a lot of it might not matter, but you know, give it a shot, and you'll. Be done in four months.
1: I gotta say, like, nothing was more worth my money than seeing A Force or like Kitty Pride and Star Lord, like those series like that and I, Inferno. And I did love, I did, I'm probably the only person who loved the Extinction Agenda and the Days of Future Past one. Like, those, those were definitely like everything was worth the money, but you're, you're so right. There was so much good stuff coming out at the same time. It's like, please, please, no more.
2: And the one thing that was really cool was stuff like A Force, where after the event was, after secret wars was done you got a version like it was a little bit of a maybe a test run or a preview run and a force is a really great example of i thought the book was super cool and then i was so excited when we got a version of it out of secret wars
1: sometimes even characters like who maybe don't have as much outside of Secret Wars that you can go back and read like like that Elsa Bloodstone uh, which one, which Marvel Zombies was it was the Ultron version of Zombies or the, which, whichever one Elsa was in that one was so good and like I still kind of see that as my voice of Elsa Bloodstone even though it would
0: leave I definitely get that because there's alternate versions of characters that like I am definitely yeah okay and some of it is because alternate universe versions of characters sometimes allow us to see stories that we never saw play out in ways that are exciting. Like, I'll admit, I do kind of like the idea of real-time aging for comic book characters. I understand it needs to be a separate imprint because one of the narrative elements of comic book characters is an inability to pass the torch in a way that suffocates sidekicks from ever becoming adults. <laughs> but I also think that Old Man Logan has his values, not just because delicious, but because he's got everything our Logan has but something has forced his his aging system. Something has broken his inability to get older, and now he's aging. He is Old Man Logan, and it can't be more than, like, you know, 80 years in the future, because look at Hawkeye still driving a car, or whatever. So, I feel as though there are things you can get out of an AU that are really valuable, and I think that is where things like Old Man Logan and the Exiles line all really thrive. For giving us an opportunity to examine some things from another perspective, I also think that there are really defining versions of characters from AUs that I think are sometimes more likable than their regular version. The greatest gift that the Age of Apocalypse ever gave us. Hello, Clarice. I think Blink is the best. And if I have to like a saber-tooth, fine, Mr. Green. But then there's also like Sunfire who is the best. And there's, okay, (laughs) um, I sometimes think that when Claremont came on to Exiles and New Exiles and New New Exiles Exiles, and I can't believe it's not Exiles. I think when he did all of those books for a minute, he was sort of just like, take a name, take a power set, take a situation. Okay. Gambit is Namor and wears a lot of gold and is blonde.
2: (laughs) Wow, that is a really accurate description of what seems to have happened.
0: It's a decision. Yeah. So, what is it for you guys that makes a great AU? What defines an AU for you? I
1: always gravitate toward the darker one, so always seeing these joyous heroes be put through the situations where they don't actually get to win or, you know, they don't actually get to save the day. They, you know, and, some, and sometimes they actually really die and seeing the ramifications from it really reverberates a lot with me. And uh, that's something that I always look for in a good alternate reality. Just something that will let me see how
2: that character would handle it.
0: Nathan is forgiving pain Dom. Okay, yes. good to know. TK,
2: for me, it's always that like what can I pull out of this to understand about my favorite characters I think I, as I mentioned I absolutely love Paige Guthrie in the Age of Apocalypse and to me there was something there in that Paige has a dark and harder side to her that could be brought out in search- certain situations and I think the real disappointment to me is that not counting the thing in Wolf Wolverine and the X Men, nobody ever really got to find that darkness in Paige in a situation that could be kind of consistent in the main Marvel universe. Having
0: sex with Toad isn't
2: darkness. have you seen that tongue (laughs) oh god (laughs) i'm so yeah i mean uh, as weird as age of x-man was things like making blob sexy and finding a world in which betsy and blob could be a thing and that to me like i mean i think that this depiction of blob as the well-to-do bar owner is kind of a pull from Age. Of X Men in this world, where like if nothing else, he's likable. You know what I mean? Like it, it gave us a sense. Uh, I feel like it did a really good job of giving us a sense of a lot of characters that I think is still important to how I see a bunch of them today. For me, the the thing that can be the downfall of an AU is if the idea behind it is kind of really thin. And as cool as I think Age of X man is, just going with the idea of like what if no relationships, but like like maybe romantic relationships, but also maybe it's family relationships, but maybe it's neither. Just got so confusing that it really kind of dragged down my ability to invest fully. And I did just kind of dive into a lot of that character work to just kind of look at on its own without investing in the story.
0: In a lot of AUs, that's kind of what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah, with Age of X-Men,
1: I did love the secret relationship between Kurt and Megan. That's like something that as a reading Excalibur through the early years, like I always wanted to see explore Board and I'm I'm glad. I'm glad that Megan and Brian are in a much better place. But back then Brian was always an her And I was like, you deserve better, girl. Kurt's right there. And it was it was nice to see.
2: That's such a good example, too, because that's another thing that you get is okay, if we can't ever split these two characters up, or if we're never really gonna tie Kurt down, let's give you a gift of getting four issues in which you do get to see it, and you kind of get to play out that fantasy in something more than like your own fan fiction. You know what I mean?
0: I completely agree because the thing that Age of X-Men and a lot of alternate universe reality looks like it, it allows us to see what our characters' desires and fears are. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I think is so central to understanding a hero now is the realism that comes along with modern storytelling, how it contrasts with our understanding of what the trope is. You know, the idea is that Captain America comes in, he's the American cavalry, shield first, he saves the day, and he's smiling. Judgment Day really turned that on its head. Could he be the cavalry? And while Judgment Day certainly wasn't an AU, it is the kind of thing that is a hallmark of modern storytelling. An AU allows us to take it much further. Like Nathan said, it allows us to push it places that can't be reached otherwise. I think one of the shortfalls of Heroes Reborn is that There is absolutely no repercussions of this book. There is no fanfare for it. There is no acknowledgement for it. First of all, coolest fucking book design Mm. since goddamn Secret Wars. Mm -hmm. What a delightful look. What a stark, clean way to think of visuals. It kind of takes some of the Civil War look, but it gives it this bright, vibrant, fun tone. The egregious and exorbitant number of spacing pages pages in some of these is just out of control, inflating the page count on some of these by like four pages. I love it. I truly love it. Worth it. It's kind of boutique priced anyway. It's sort of a boutique project. But where was the excitement on a corporate level? Where was the excitement for this in a general comic sense? I mean, I understand name working against it, frankly, kind of creator working against it and COVID maybe. But this could have been cooler than it wound up if somebody had noticed. I mean, I. it's funny, I
2: really did not notice at the time when you said that we were going to be reading this, I went and was looking at the dates and I just thought, there's no way this was just last summer. Like, this has to, I feel like this was 2018, because it just like, it feels far off and it feels like there's no way you could have done a, I want to say line-wide, but the fact is, the line was still going. This is like a line alternative that so completely encompasses the entire Marvel universe and yet no, there's there's nothing there's not even really references to it in most books like and granted I'm somebody who at the time was reading a lot more X-Men but like there's nothing there was really no indication that this happened in mainline continuity let alone in terms of things like advertising like I just really don't recall seeing anything about
1: yeah it didn't get much shatter. It didn't get much of the conversation out there online that we see about things. I know Heroes Reborn was really quiet uh, on all fronts. It was a really good, it was a really good, amazing crossover. And like it, like, I think it had things that reverberate through, but only specifically like in Avengers afterwards. I don't think it mattered to anything else in the like universe. And
0: it's such a shame because the book that this takes its name from, Heroes Reborn, actually has a really deluxe omnibus featuring like every fucking thing (laughs) it has the 12 issues of Cap the 12 issues of Avengers the 12 issues of Fantastic Four and Iron Man material from Incredible Hulk 450 and Heroes Reborn 1 half Heroes Reborn The Return has all of the relevant minis and one shots plus a huge amount of Thunderbolts Fantastic Four Exiles Onslaught Reborn Onslaught Unleashed and a number of incredible specials now each of those clock in at over 1,100 pages at 1,360 and 1,136 respectively. Now, Heroes Reborn, America's Mightiest Heroes, within uh, you know, just days of both recording and releasing this, came out at just 560 pages. And that's all 18 issues. It's kind of underwhelming when you think that it like, I don't know, it's like, this should have been like, every fucking book all summer and like it would have been so cool because one of the things that they did for this crossover that made it feel delicious was none of the one shots were really like happening today Mm -hmm. the one shots were all past issues and I just sort of wish they'd had fake numbers like for instance I love the Hyperion and Imperial Guard number one and it's meant to be from 1992 anyway so it's meant to be classic and the Star Jammer preview that says coming in 1992 Mm-hmm. Is meant to be classic. And like, I get that, but it would have been way cooler if it had been, you know, Hyperion and the Imperial Guard 107 or something. And it had a cover date of April 1992. That's just what maybe, because we still would have known what it was from the banner, which would have had the real cover and the real date. There's just like so many cool things they did here. I love the idea of like Mandala affecting in some classic issues of a book.
2: <laughs> and why
0: not if you're not doing
2: anything with it? If this is just totally throwing it up in the air cuz like you're not going to confuse people the worst that happens is you, somebody is like issue 192 I've never heard of this book before and they go online and google and discover this is actually a whole event maybe you might want to buy some of it but like if it is not even delay like if it's not be a line wide crossover in which the title that it's taking over for is canceled until the run is done like you lose nothing by doing something fun like that.
1: Agreed. And if if I remember they did some of the like you know like editors notes for stories that never existed throughout yeah. the whole event. So like yeah, I wish they had gone all in with it and done that. My favorite part of Amalgam, like when they did the Marvel DC Amalgam
2: mm-hmm.
1: universe was the the fake letter pages with the fake stories that like gave you this richer
0: history. Mm-hmm. I love that we keep threatening to do that. <coughs> We're going to. It's going to happen. I just I can't wait. It's something that like we have to do. It's it's built into our blood, so it'll it'll be a really good time when we get to it. Oh, it'll be so fun. Here is Reborn, this miniseries is one of the things that I think is occasionally a hallmark of Jason Aaron's, and you either go with it or you don't, you're either into it or you're not. He sometimes just needs you to pick up where he's in the middle of the story. And I know that N Media Red storytelling is a very prominent, popular storytelling method. It forces the reader or the audience to engage in a very dramatic way with what's going on on the page actively, forcing you into a very participatory role in understanding what's going going on, you know, with the same premise behind the pilot character. But the idea that Blade is like the main character of Avengers to some extent feels like a reach. Seeing Robbie on those first pages is a really good way to tie me into the Avengers because I feel like Robbie kind of plays a little bit more the role I think we're meant to think Blade takes. But if you're not reading Avengers, you're probably like, number one, Blade. Number two, I know we're nowhere near it. But guys, when Blade blade turns into a smoke monster and flies captain america faster than hyperion can see in broad daylight and it's like we got away from the world's most powerful man what you thinking and cap's like let's go making us an avengers i'm like did everybody know that blade can turn into a super fast smoke monster? that
2: was a distinct moment of confusion for me and I, I i really actually am thankful that you brought it up because i was just sitting there going i'm sure this has been mentioned and i just totally
0: glossed over Don't say you didn't know.
1: Yes, I do love that he's got all the strengths of a vampire and none of the weaknesses. Daywalker.
0: He is the Dampire, which I always thought that like that a a no weakness vampire being called the Dampire. (laughs) I I wonder if it came from like other vampires are just so jealous. They're like Dampire exactly <laughs> they're just cursing the moon so uh, but how do it's you c- guys true
2: that like it it's not even cl- really clear where you should as an avengers reader fix this into your run of the avengers like there really is nothing to grip onto here which again could be fine if this was doing some kind of if it was making some kind of choice to just be its own entire separate event but it has all the trappings of like this should come between I'm just throwing numbers out but like between issues 30 and 31 and like we paused the book for a couple months to do
1: this I think that would have made much more of an impact because it it didn't feel important it felt like something we all knew it was going to go back to the way it was or some stuff would be a little bit different but yeah agree okay yeah
0: now one of the things that really stood out to me right away was the raisin nature of combining villains felt ultimately like a poorly used marketing ploy. I'm not saying it doesn't work in the context of the story because I love these fights. Dr. Juggernaut, Mm. who is Dr. Doom with the Gem of Sidorak versus Hyperion. Nighthawk versus the Black Skull, which is a minimized red skull. There's Dr. Spectrum versus Thanos and the Infinity Rings. Blur versus the Silver Witch, which is Wanda with Pietro's powers. And... Power Princess versus the Unstoppable All-Gog, which I have to be honest, and I know this is really stupid, but he's not meant to be the Unstoppable Squirrel Girl, right? <laughs> That's not the other half. Okay. You know, there's references to Strange, Walters, Banner, Danvers, Stark, and how they didn't become anything. And then we see these fusion villains. And I just want to say, like, oh I'm a little sad. All of these fusion villains mean that, like, a bunch of other people didn't get their chance at villainy. <laughs> oh. Aww. How do you guys feel about the fusion villains?
1: I, I, I'm i sorry. I loved it. I hated it when I got the initial, like, you know, when they started sharing the initial, like, uh, preview art for it. I was like, what is this? What- why is Joker not going to be Dr. Doom? That makes no sense. But when you when you actually got into the story and you see what was going on, it was it was really fun to me. I liked some of the subtle changes they made on other characters, like the ghost runner.
0: And in stairs. Sorry, <laughs> I get excited.
1: <laughs> and in stairs. I loved a lot of that. Dr. Doom or not. That, that's just a great way. Like, when you read that and you go into it, you know exactly what you're in store for and I loved how it set the tone. For.
2: The one thing I will say is again, with kind of no guidance for why this AU is happening. It gave me pause that so many of the villains are fusion villains. The idea that like Dr. Doom would get the gem of Sidorak and and become uh, Dr. Juggernaut versus like, you know, the Squadron Supreme is just the Squadron Supreme. All of the X-Men are, you know, just themselves. Rocket is just himself, although, you know, maybe that's a Groot-Rocket fusion in terms of the gun. I was sort of thrown by the fact that you have all of these villains that are fused, but then you don't really get a lot of heroes that are.
0: I agree. I think because so many heroes are taken off the board, how could you fuse them? I mean, it,
2: on the one hand, it makes sense, but like, well, and you know, you do get the star brand going to rocket at one point, but like that is impermanent. But you know, somebody else could have discovered the gamma radiation. The if Johnny Storm had somehow still gotten hit by cosmic rays, but then become part of the Nova Corps, you know, that because it is so specifically like these two characters combined into this one. Nobody really gets that from the hero side. If they have a different role, that's like kind of the same thing. But, you know, Johnny Storm as Human Torch, part of the
0: Nova Corps, that would have been a cool thing to me. I get your perspective. Oh, thank you. Um, You know what perspective I don't get? Mm. And I'm not saying that, you know, this was like a deal breaker. But if I think there is one character that Jason Aaron is like the, you know, bearded mead god of, <laughs> it's the bearded mead god himself. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Thor. And here's Thor just taken off the table completely. It just bums me out because I know what a good job Aaron can do writing a multifaceted Thor who is capable of showing complexity across like multiversal selves. He's written so many alternate Thors within his Thor runs that it just feels like a miss that here he's not really Thor. I love the moment where Blade's like Hey, you're a Thor. And Thor's like, no, I'm a drinking man. And Blade's like, all right, this is pathetic. I'm gonna go find a dude who's literally encased in ice because you're too cold for me. <laughs> I love sassy, I love sassy blade. Ooh. So um Blade fucks right off. And when Thor's is like, fuck it, and like slams down his beer, really. I oh, I realized who I'm making him. That's embarrassing. So um when <laughs> he slams down his beer. And it turns into you know Mjolnir. I'm like, this is that's a really cool Aaron concept. It just feels like I don't get any Aaron Thor, which is like you know what pays the bills up in this house.
2: I wonder if maybe that was a conscious choice to not rely on a crutch or what would have been seen as the most obvious thing
0: for him. Now I also think that Blade being like, hey, Nighthawk, listen. <laughs> I'm going to bring down reality. And Nighthawk being like, I'm a very good detective. And Blade being like, swords? And Nighthawk's just like, but I know kung fu. And Blade is like, me too. And then they both just sort of go, cool. And like walk away from each other is the most Bill Lawrence thing I have ever seen in a comic book. What a bonkers moment. And that it ultimately has Blade find Cap in a block of ice And Coulson is so creepy. (laughs) I don't know. I actually think other than the fact that it's just kind of a lot of atmosphere, like, you know, you come to a an Aaron crossover expecting like Euro Disneyland in your face (laughs) and you come here and you sort of get like Stonehenge land and it's very, you know, where the Stonehenge and it's not in your face. It's just creepy and atmospheric. I just didn't expect it, but it makes for a really chewy first issue. There's a lot to gnaw on here.
1: I think it was still issue one especially really balls to the wall Jason Aaron Disneyland for me because it got to set some of it up but there was some really interesting you know like balls to the wall shit like you know like the Scarlet Witch and Doctor Doom in this universe and you know like in Galactus like him going through Galactus's head and killing him that way like there's some really really balls to the wall shit. I I, I thought so. I loved it.
2: The first issue I I feel like for me it did not take off the way the subsequent issues did and I think part of that is because the rest of them have the framework of one member of the Squadron Supreme per issue versus that one's just kind of Blade doing like a survey of the whole thing. I think I just kind of felt like in the beginning I was seeing a lot of stuff that I had seen before and was sort of like okay like I know how AUs work there's always one guy who knows and it was Bishop in Age of Apocalypse and in this one it's Blade sure okay and oh look like I see who the Avengers are and I was just kind of checking off boxes but then after that to do the dial into Hyperion in the next issue for me it really was the Doctor Spectrum that art you are right it is hideous in the most amazing way but that issue really was like where i was finally like okay i am into this and i think it was that deep dive into each character which really did it for me that just kind of was missing from issue one and there wasn't really a hook that was similarly powerful so i just kind of i was like okay this is this is what we're doing
0: you know when you can imagine a world that is both candide and hell world at the same time (laughs) this hero's reborn in 1999 (laughs) where blade is played by will smith and he has a song that's like welcome to the new world and like (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and in the video he's constantly turning into a flying <laughs> smoke monster, monster back. <laughs> oh gosh, I I've died. Okay. <laughs> now, I do think that you're correct. There is a lot more that comes in the powerful issues that follow. It does really bring to light something that I think is defining of this crossover. There's an idea that the way this team of Avengers shows power is by being up against people we recognize to be big deals. That really does play into these characters believing the lie. Not so much Zarda. Because Zarda doesn't really need the lie. Zarda doesn't really give a shit. (laughs) But I think that the bigger picture here is there is a sincerity to these paradigms to Hyperion versus Doctor Doom and Juggernaut. He ultimately, we are told, plays an X-Men-ish role and we are ultimately told that he is kind of a progenitor hero for this universe. He does sort of play a father or older brother kind of role and he clearly can't play Spider-Man because he eats three Spider-Mans a day for breakfast. And he makes sense to face off against that composite. Nighthawk, facing off against Red Skull combined with Venom, while it does challenge very much the idea that he's kind of Spider-Man, not really, but there is something about the dark underworld facing off against the Batman stand-in. And I think this really highlights the ways that you need to believe the lie. They need to believe the lie. There's an over-the-topness that I think exploits the hyper drama that you made fun of earlier. TK. The hideousness of Mountain Pet Cap is just, it's a synthal nightmare from hell. And this is aiming, I think, in a lot of ways to ridicule the people who would say that that is vastly superior to the stories we're getting now. I don't think it champions any of these hyper-American to the point of dictatorship notions of power as abuse. I think it seeks to exploit them. And I think by calling this hero is reborn, it says That those power struggles have always lied in our comics. And I think this first issue opens up the argument that even in a non politicized world, but rather a world that exclusively exists to present superhero situations, one of the things that still rises up is the power struggle of I'm big, you're little, I win. And how that is never meant to be the prevailing notion of our superhero comics. It ultimately becomes an overwhelming notion that plays out throughout the story. And I would love to get what you guys think about the. Lack of nuance. Something we love is that the Avengers try to talk it out first. There's not a whole lot of talk in here.
2: I think for me, the not the argument against what you're saying, but the one that actually kind of highlights it by being a little bit more about nuance is the blur.
0: Oh, that issue is so good.
2: It's so fantastic. And, you know, what you have is a character who represents the worst aspects of our inability to pay attention attention and to focus our need to be on three different screens at once and that that makes us feel like we're all really doing something the fact that ultimately it also turns out that like it ultimately only took him 17 minutes to reach enlightenment and while that felt very long for him that's not really that long and just the kind of back and forth of this, like this guy who knows that he has to reach a sort of higher level of attention and focus, but then never actually like does it in a in a real way, in a way that any reader could be like, I recognize that he really put the work in, but he through that ultimately gains enough power to withstand the Silver Witch. Like it really is flipping the whole idea of what we see as might on its head and might becomes not just who can be the biggest and who can be the most powerful but also who can game the system and who can find ways to cheat their themselves to the power that they need and I don't think I really gripped quite what you were saying until I read that issue and really understood that this is a about the narrative need for these guys to win at any cost because that's going to continue to further the story and starting to see the cracks form based around the fact that like they they'll, they won't be able to cheat the system forever we know that they're this is going to shut down based on the fact that somebody else will find a way to finally keep them honest.
1: It's, I just think it's fascinating to present us with these archetypes of heroic tropes that we have and flip it on their head a little which squatted Supreme always does. It makes you challenge what would these heroes do? Are they even heroes? Do they think of themselves as heroes?
0: I always said, I can't come back to wait. I can't wait to come back and talk about all of the subsequent issues, the other 17 issues of Heroes Reborn because, you know, the discussion of AUs was just so fascinating and I had to know what you guys thought because I love your guys' thoughts. And the, you know, thing I can't wait to get back to is that goddamn Rainbow Axe. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's my, it's my artist. And yes. it's, my, it's my everything. It's so good. And she's such a horny bastard. I love her. <laughs> that and, issue? Mm. Love it. Uh, and, you know, just not for nothing, but you know, I prepped for this. I read these issues for this. The Hyperion issue, good art, hot, really into it. <laughs> the blur issue. Fantastic. Such an incredible exploration of these characters. That doc spectrum issue, ugly in the best way, it but is. ugly. And the thing that really stood out to me were the fucking rainbow letters and he's talking about I'm an American, I'm an American and, like, you want <laughs> yeah. to hear the accent but like it's not an American flag, it's, it's his spectrum powers mm-hmm. that like fill his bubble and yeah. there's something about that that I think belies the truth of his nature deeper than the synthesis of the world around him and like you know when you say that like Blur kind of proves it, I think one of the things I noticed is that Blur is the character that's kind of challenging him and because of his enlightenment he is kind of like hmm and he kind of notes it and mentions it a little bit more. And everybody else is like, oh no, I said that can't be true. Right? Like Doc Spectrum is even dismissive of it. So I feel like it even does highlight your highlight of my highlight.
2: The irony of Dr. Spectrum being this person that his powers defy the idea of like empirical evidence and he just kind of uses only his imagination and the power of something he doesn't understand to control reality as a whole.
0: It's a gift from God, you know.
2: I <laughs> do
3: Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Jake, and you can find me down at the Red Keep in Hellfire Bay, macking with my sugar daddy Christian Frost, or over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel,
4: that's O-H, Mega Sentinel. And I'm Arturo, ya tu sabe, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram.
2: And I'm TK, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X. and we hope you survive this experience.
3: We're talking about Marauders Number no. 7, written by Steve Orlando, with Eleonora Carlini joining us again on Art, Rachel Rose. Rosenberg and Matt Mila on color and VC's Ariana Marr on letters and production. So, with this issue, we're officially off to the races with a new arc. We've got a new mission for the crew, another time jaunt back in time to rescue the mutants of Threshold from the likes of Sublime and Arkea. How's everyone feeling about where things are picking up at the start of this new arc?
4: Wow. <laughs> There's so much going on. I mean, I, you know, I'm along for the ride, absolutely. Like, I'm into it so far, but I just have so many questions and I'm hoping. That eventually they'll get answered and things will will tie together a little more. But like just to get it off my chest, I would care so much more about Threshold if there was any kind of connection or narrative like link between them and Occo. Like it feels so crazy to me that we go through everything we've gone through to like create the history of Arocco, and now we've colonized Mars, and like we have this whole population, you know, of mutant dumb and this rich history. And instead of like mining that or giving that more color or just like a different spin or a different you know this group that splintered off or whatever we got this whole other ancient race of mutants before mutants and i don't know i don't know maybe I'm, I'm burnt out on our ancient ancestors that we don't know about like i just think it's you know it's a little lot that said and as you mentioned we do end up talking about sublime so there's that <laughs> if we had gotten
2: more Araco stories i might be okay with where this went but right. it, the fact that we we just lost a lot of the Araki and are maybe not getting them back I think we're all sitting around wondering if like we really just lost Magneto there are a lot of mutants on formerly Mars that are dead now and the cool thing about that is that this threshold population really does feel like if we're gonna go save all of them they might have a home on Arako mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is cool, but uh, maybe does a disservice to those mutants that were there that died. And that could be problematic because of their origins that are much less white and European than any other origins that we're talking about for a lot of mutants. So I don't know. It's all really up in the air. Right now, I am waiting with bated breath. Everything, Arturo, everything that you're saying is like, I agree hoping we get surprised with what the ultimate like resolution to all of this is i, I
4: mean and it's like narratively i don't feel like that much w- would have to change as far as like the story he's telling here it's just it feels like it's just missing that little veneer of you know of, of connectivity to the rest of this you know kind of crocone era mythos and and history that that we've established it's like and i i granted like this was written probably you know in a vacuum separated from knowing what the hell was going on going on in Judgment Day and the fate of Arako and you know all of that like you know granted like definitely we we are out of the the crossover event by the time we you know jump back in here so Magneto might not be back but you know <laughs> mutant kind kept on kicking after Judgment Day evidently
3: just there wasn't enough Arako so why are we getting more why are we getting a new ancient mutant civilization stories all of a sudden does that not like take away from it and I think that my counterpoint would be this is is a different thing this is the uncovering of a lost mutant society lost mutant people in a way Araco wasn't so much lost like couldn't have been because it was like still within the the same geological history uh that we're in now whereas like threshold is so far back and this is an integrated human and mutant society that functioned as Mm -hmm. one society where Araco was never really that it was about separatism and i think that that offers i think that that's going to offer something i think that 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 is a that's different for a reason and that there's there's a st- storytelling point coming about that particular dynamic and i guess yeah i mean like for the like narrative economy of storytelling it could have been a better racco and it would have made things it would have made things a lot less like a, l- a lot more streamlined but you know here we are and we've got we've got threshold for me
4: worth the price of admission is just the whole fang of it all like i've already gone you know saying the praises of that you know i think last last issue that we, mm-hmm. we discussed and i'm just happy to see it like continuing I love seeing you know Psylocke using his chosen name like I just love that and I love the outfit and I love it I, I like the tremendo glow up for our boy
3: for now we've got Thea Amas, and Crave. Thea is our gravity warper who can I guess make time vortexes too kind of like Heather we've got Amass who is really into merging with people which feels very sexual
4: a provocateur able yes. to combine <laughs> us into a unified Thank being you. I, I like, think that okay. says a
3: lot about that character without saying much about that character. Yeah. You know what um, says
4: a lot about another character? Crave will eat anything. Uh, who can consume anything to survive. And did y'all catch the yep. uh, eat my butt joke with yes. Somnus? Because yep. oh, yep. panel yep. of the week for me, you see, Dakin does not look happy about it. Somnus and, uh, you know, credit to the artist. because You the, mean Fang, girl. You mean Fang. Fang, Fang, Fang. Yes, yes. Clock me. But um, um,
3: this is such a flirty issue. Because that's not the only place we see some really hot, like hot man on man flirtation. You see it with Tulkis hitting on Fang in that fight. Mm-hmm. You see, like even honestly, I feel like Christian Frost is hitting on Bishop when he's walking around in his undies, uh, showing as much skin as his sister in his like new red hellfire getup. That for me read
4: very like Bishop's like a great ally. He's yeah. like, you <laughs> he's, know, he he's tolerates. like yeah, he totally yeah. tolerates it. He's like, you look great, love the outfit. Like um, he's so- the admiration yes it's like the cutest way possible that doesn't feel flirty at all from Bishop feels like allyship but wait can we go back to the Somnus panel for one second Yeah, because to the artist's credit you only see like a fraction of Somnus's face but the expression is very clear and he goes so you eat things Mm -hmm. and the smile on Crave's face when he says whatever pleases me as often as possible if they're not talking about (laughs) booty hole honey I also love Crave little like
3: last airbender arrow tattoo Mm -hmm. just all of Um, all crave 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 everything crave everything i crave him.
2: we get some beautiful flirtiness between thea and heather too between tempo and between the time warpers
3: this is just a very queer situation
2: also i love that like we're all waiting for the gay moment between Ilyana and kitty but until that happens kitty does not do a lot of queer stuff in this book and i really love that because i just really love that's being held in reserve for the time where it really matters like there's all these cute semi-queer to queer girls in this book that kitty could be hitting on but it is not happening because that is the one that everybody knows you have to save
4: I, I feel like we're prepping the earth for, for the coming of that moment with yep. <laughs> with like Captain Betsy Braddock and Rachel. Like, dear God, how many decades have of you know we waited to see Rachel kiss anybody, really.
3: Well, it's I think it's smart too that, you know, Kate is is captain of the Marauders. She's a, in a leadership position. So, you know, her team can get all flirty, but she's gotta stay removed. She's gotta stay in that leadership position. And at the same time, Ilyana is quietly moving up the ranks. Of the X Men social hierarchy is a is a you know a war captain of Krakoa and is now on the main X Men team. So I think like we're getting to a point where they're kind of like getting to the same level of social status and can really like finally be together in that way.
2: I think we're setting up for it, and I think when it hits, it's going to seem like the final piece has finally fallen into place.
4: <laughs> that sounded like the culmination of the gay agenda when yeah, the exactly. final domino falls. (laughs) Yeah, totally not like every artist who
2: draws Kate is bad at giving her outfits it's that Kate is bad at picking them <laughs> yeah and as okay. a character choice everybody is nailing a bad outfit the artist didn't do a bad job of creating it he did an amazing job of doing Kate's bad job
3: yeah i mean it's it's a running joke throughout yeah. catherine pride's entire history for what it's worth i love
2: that like a reference to that throughout this is cassandra calling her sprite
3: it's such a bitchy clap and it works so well every time it's really fucking cunty and (laughs) it's like it's the one thing
2: that like because obviously we love to hate cassandra nova and we love seeing her be cunty in the same way we love seeing it from emma frost and like because she's a protagonist and like maybe a hero we're like kind of rooting for her but then kitty is the one person you can't fuck with with x-men fans so we're all in this really funny place of like trying to laugh about it and like she's kind of right because kitty is kind of a hot mess but at the same time we all love kitty and you're being a bitch to our little sister it's just the funniest back and forth Forth. and I do think that it is something the book really is nailing that the only thing is I really hope we get a solid resolution at the level of what we got with Kate and Emma
3: well and I want to dig into that Cassandra Nova captain Kate conflict a little bit because that's one of the one of the big stakes of this issue is Kate wants to bring the team back in time to rescue threshold rescue them from what from themselves sort of and also the industrial anaerobic Civilization that they were fighting my God! <laughs> if you're confused, then I would suggest googling the oxygen catastrophe because that was an actual thing that happened in our in our Earth's history. There's a whole Wikipedia article about it. Um, the sum of which is, at one point, the atmosphere became so the atmosphere, which was not mostly oxygen, became so populated with oxygen that it created a tipping point, and the anaerobic life forms, mostly mostly microorganisms, started to die out in mass, while the cyanobacteria that produced oxygen
4: flourished thank you for pointing out that was a real thing that makes the whole concept a little more palatable to me i did say you know we end up with sublime and uh anarchia, and that's a complicated you know character and story and storyline and i appreciate that steve orlando's going for something like that and that's why i'm kind of waiting to see where this all shakes out because you know john sublime was was part of like you know the the evolution of mankind or whatever which was a big grandiose story and not so I think that uh, anybody was like, oh, I can't wait till we get back into that. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate that that Orlando does that. You know, first it was with the Shi'ar and the Crimson Kin and, you know, eh, eh, Threshold now. And I, I appreciate that he's swinging real big.
3: Yeah. As a storyteller, Steve Orlando is so good at weaving together the various strands of a subject into a cohesive narrative. Blimey Archaea is such a... Archaea itself is like a one arc story of... Key- Arkea was was kind of like was itself an add-on to the John Sublime story, a complication of that story. And now we're getting that, we're getting even more of that. You know, we're we're locking it into this new element of mutant history. I just I love the build. I love the integration. I think Steve does a really, a really tremendous job or has done so far. So I'm kind of I'm 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 really want to see where he takes this.
2: I definitely think it was a choice to include Arkea, because I think you could have not done so and Nobody would have batted an eyelash. uh, Unless there's something really specific about whatever the background is, wherein it has to have been at that time that they were both on Earth before Sublime won the battle between the two of them and flung Archaea into space. You could skip it entirely. And this could just be a Sublime story, which, like, Sublime is a Grant Morrison invention. It is, I think, something that a lot of us think of as really special and important and, like, a part of the mythology that. because it's kind of really part and parcel with Magneto and Zorn and that whole thing that we really had to retcon super hard so that Magneto could come back. Like,
4: it was an amazing story, but it couldn't last. Well, and it was an insane reveal and twist, right? Like, you you think John Sublime is one thing. You think he's a, he's a person. And, you know, the big reveal of him being a sentient, ancient, you know, immortal bacteria was just such a head fuck. So, like, Morrisonian, you know? Well, and just then to huge, discover that concepts. you know he's in the inhalers and he's magneto right. and
2: oh shit right. now he's beast like Yo. it really was i mean yeah there were so many twists and i feel like for those of us that were really invested in new x-men like you really could just say like oh i'm bringing back sublime and we would all kind of lose our minds a little bit um like especially in a book and by an author that appears to really want to pay homage to morrison and mm-hmm. to like the hickman connection to morrison and that connection to chris claremont like i i steve orlando is really positioning himself as writing to that lineage that i think we all see connected and i'm not criticizing the use of archaea in that but i think i think that is a really bold move because i think the expectation would be like i'm just gonna tell another sublime story and to be like no i'm taking the like good continuity that we all think is cool and the weird continuity we all didn't (laughs) understand why it was in there and i'm gonna fucking put them both in there i think that's big swing i don't necessarily think i'm gonna like where it goes but i'm really going to respect that it was done in the first place
3: we're gonna be seeing a story about a civilization that's been rolled over by by a pandemic essentially by like a set of viruses that went out of control just given the timing of the book when he might have started writing this like this this feels to me like a story about a civilization up against the invisible enemy in a way
4: i'm a hundred percent with you although i am very apprehensive about going back in time to save these people like it's one thing to save you know some survivors and the history and let's remember the threshold it's kind of another thing to fuck with the timeline to Mm -hmm. this extent you know what i mean like i mean hell not to be reductive but like i can think of a couple of things in the last hundred years that you could go back and change and um i'm sure there's butterfly effects but if you're going back to like like primordial earth I, I, i don't know like are you gonna time travel them all out of there bring them to the present, maybe. It's just, it, it's a lot. It's a lot with with that plan. I, like that we got the three, you know, out of the DNA thing. I was like, okay, cool, cool. You know, we're getting all this history lesson and exposition and I'm into it. But then it was like, now we're going to go and, you know, save them where? The question isn't where, when, you know, like ah, a little hesitant. How many boost fruit are we going to have to take to travel back? Don't even get me started on boost fruit.
3: Well, apparently we don't have to worry about- about that, because Smyr is being watered with vodka, which seemed a little bit like a low-hanging fruit kind of
4: joke. L- that was a- His low-hanging fruit, I think, is exactly why uh, Kristen Frost is hanging out around there so much. <laughs> I don't really remember this Murdyakov person. When was when was he introduced? I don't even
3: Oh, he's one of those
4: old poles. Like oh, he may have old, been on the page
3: old... once in the 1980s, you know. Okay, that, cool.
4: Okay, all That right. kind of I love that, that this guy's in here now. I had no idea he was a deep cut and a and a deep pull, like all about that. What I want to beg for is bring some black Tom and I want like a whole little Krokoan earth, you know, circuit. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Mondo, bring Richter in. To it, like it feels like they would be a really valuable little squad for the protection of Krakoa. For you know, maybe they could be like working directly with Doug and Warlock, or you know, I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent here, but that's like a fun unlimited arc. Yeah, we've got you know earthy tree people. Use them
2: well, and you know, I think this book is the one that makes you feel like it's not unreasonable to ask for those things, and not of course not. We're not going to get them for everything that we want, but when you. You see how Steve Orlando is taking a lot of deep pulls and pulling mm-hmm. things together that you're like, of course that makes sense. It does set up the expectation. And the fact that this is all still so like, you know, Kate is really talking about like marauder procedure as though it's kind of like down pat and like this is going to be the status quo for a while. That is the only thing that makes me feel like even in another year, Fall of X would be too soon to, for it to be like the end of Krakula, and I could be totally wrong. Wrong, but I just feel like we're even even a year's more worth of stories is not going to be enough time that a lot of these writers are writing in a way that like this is a like I think this has another three to five years in it. And who knows? But I just moments like these lead me to believe it's going on longer. And then also, yeah, like exactly Arturo, what you're saying, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, even if it were just a one off story, like Black Tom for one thing, Black Tom and Mondo have a history. So pull from pull from that because Mm -hmm. they they should revisit that but then like they are both really important for an ecosystem as an ally black tom is doing that work actively mondo we haven't seen but really plausibly could be doing it so like i think it's really reasonable to want to see that on
3: page and i
2: don't i would not be shocked if we
3: did so what is kate's play here we know from ish from the get-go that they're going back to the far past because that mysterium puzzle box was 32 billion years old or whatever and it was written in Kate the message was written in Kate's handwriting so right off the get-go unless that's that's a fake thing which it's comics so of course it's not we know they're going back in time so that's happening but what is the play? How do you rescue a whole society? Period. But how do you rescue a whole society that was supposed to have been wiped out? You know how do you how do you do this? I mean TK you pointed out earlier that Arako has has recently experienced a major life loss event is the idea to just pull. Put the thresholders onto Rocco, That would be really, really insensitive and strange. That would be a weird so move. Up. Yeah, I think
2: it'd be weird for Kate to show up with, you know, a hundred thousand people or whatever it is, and be like, "Hey, I know y'all got room up there, so we're sending them to you." <laughs> <laughs> but I do think there's a way in which she brings them back. She's like, I couldn't let them die. And then while they're all like, well, what the fuck are we going to do with them? Somebody from Morocco says, we've got space.
4: Like you can, we will take them. It's but, it's going to be all in how it's written. If this is like the game plan, then, you know, it's not a unreasonable question to say, well, how about we jump back a week ago and evacuate Morocco before these motherfuckers show You know what I mean? For tempo for tempo, that is an option, but tempo, it's only for tempo. But
3: the I think this is this is my like this is how I'm trying to wrap my head around temporal mechanics here. Because it's so far back in the past, there wouldn't be any information about that civilization anyway. You know, tectonic plate shifts, chemical changes, off gassing. Like there's nothing there wouldn't be any remnants of a civilization like this, period. Just because of the way things change over thirty two billion years. So there wouldn't be any evidence to say that they didn't just disappear one day in their timeline and then, you know, push to the future. It's very, it reminds me a little bit of, what is it, Seven Soldiers, but in reverse, where the civilization at the end of time tries to come back and, like, eat its own tail. (laughs) To try Right. And right,
4: like, right they should Kate's not changing history. This is how it always happened type but, of thing. But,
3: Which, but to do that know. a week ago, you know, Arako is established already. Like we know that it's dead. You know, living people who are trying to go back saw it die. So it would be a much more complicated interruption because of the like, I don't know, temporal proximity or something. We
2: don't even have to necessarily go there with it, although we can. But I mean, I feel like the fact that Cerebra shows up and talks about how and Bishop is talking about how. She should Ugh. come out, hang out with him and Cable yes. and uh and Rachel, Rachel because I love that. all of their timelines do not have these memories.
3: Because of where they're from and where they are now, that's a moving target. It changes all the time.
2: Well, or it doesn't happen, or it already is happening. I mean, the, my well, point I'm being, saying, yeah. yeah, my point being that, like, regardless of what happens with the Thresholders coming forward in time, like, we don't know what the timeline that they're pulling them from, what relation the timeline they're pulling them from has to the timeline that they're going to in the future.
3: It feels like we're taking as a given that this is the right thing to do to try and save oh, these yeah, people it from, could not from be. extinction. <laughs> it is very comic booky what they're doing, although I'm also kind of keeping in mind, like, Tempo is always giving, like, these caveats to why this is, is going to be a problem and then ultimately it's not a problem but like maybe it will be maybe there will be some serious complication maybe this like the fracture of bringing this civilization forward is what causes the sins of sinister or whatever
4: i think power creep is like a real serious thing uh in the era. you know like Mm -hmm. and i i'm for you know mutants like learning new tricks and and expanding and they're like you know in their you know apex body because it's a young fresh body but it's they've got their you know their history and their know-how baked in and you know i i get all of that but it's like you can do so many interesting things with tempo's power the way it was presented in the 90s and you could play with it and and steve's done some fun things playing with it you can do so much shit without being like okay let's travel millions of years into the past like that to me is just like it's a stretch it's it's just like eh, okay cool we can do it but like we didn't have to you know or if you're gonna make it that happen like let's do some crazy music circuit bullshit you know what I mean oh. like get Lila Cheney in it get Ooh. you know get like a couple of different heads and okay now we're gonna punch a hole through time okay cool as we have said this might be the wrong thing to do like mm-hmm. this might
2: not be something that they can do properly and have the outcome they want this maybe is something that they shouldn't do even if they could produce what they think is the right outcome I'm very skeptical too I think this is all really cool but I'm super skeptical that it's all gonna turn out great Great, and I like being in that uncertain place because I don't think this is necessarily a writer that is giving us all what we want all the time. I do hope it goes somewhere...